0: Hey guys, John Pauly here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, February 12th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. This is general information. Um, I'm not a financial advisor. I cannot give you individual financial advice when I'm talking about stocks, I may own them or not own them. I may sell them at any time. It's uh, not to be taken as investment, investment advice. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm just a guy on the internet and uh, you should do your own due diligence. It's your money, it's your responsibility. As you can see, I'm sporting my, um, I love Canadian oil and gas ball cap that came in this week along with my t-shirt. I don't have it on, but um, I thought these were really cool. Uh, I can't really, I didn't really see any reason to buy the woolen uh, hat, winter hat, pull on hat, because I'm down here in Houston, right outside of Houston. It's not that cold, but uh, I do like this trucker cap. It's well made. And as you can see, we do love Canadian oil and gas, especially small and mid cap EMP producers. And it looks like I'm getting extremely bullish on a lot of these smaller service providers, but we'll get into that during this discussion this week. So I wanted to get into this because I thought this was an interesting way to put this. This was an article, a Bloomberg article uh, that was quoting the Goldman Sachs commodity veteran, Jeff Curie, and he was talking about commodities in general. And what did he say? Quote, this is a molecule crisis. We are out of everything. I don't care if it's oil, gas, coal, copper, aluminum, you name it, we're out of it. Jeff Cur- Curry, the head of commodities research at Goldman Sachs. Now, a lot of people will say, why are you quoting Goldman Sachs? They just, they're just they just talking their book. But I'm seeing increasing evidence of this, right? I mean, I was just perusing some charts the other day of even some minor metals um, tin, uh, looks like it's at recent all-time highs. Cobalt is back at uh, recent high or making new highs, 52-week highs or even further out. Um, iron ore is turned a corner after the crash it had. Looks like China's cranking up the money uh, printing. So iron ore prices are recovering. Lumber, I think, was up. Li- has been limit up the last six trading days. Um, nickel is pushing up to $11 a pound. Copper continues to stay above four fifty a pound. You see what's happening in the oil markets. Uh, we'll talk more about that. And so, you know, coal, uh, coal prices have made, remained robust. And we'll talk about one of the earnings from one of the companies that, uh, or what happened after post earnings with Peabody. And uh, we'll be talking about that in one of the slides, but look, I, I I have to temper the enthusiasm a little bit because it seems like more and more people are becoming more and more bullish. I don't, I'm not saying that this is over with. The, thing, the metric that I use to tell me if we're uh, at the top or near the top of, a, of the commodity cycle are not flashing warning signs yet. Um, I am starting to get a little bit nervous about the interest rate situation. Um, some of the indicators I follow, I didn't put it on this week, but you'll recall that I like to look at the high yield uh, ETF. It's in a downtrend. The short ETF fund that I like looking at, um, I think it's SJB or SBJ, I can't remember. Uh, it's in an uptrend and spreads are starting to t- you know, tighten. So they're not at levels yet that have me too concerned, but You know, I don't like to get into macroeconomics that much. I'm not good at it. Um, I try to just focus on the supply demand dynamics and these individual markets. But what I would tell you is that this is kind of typical, right? Um, You see, you know, stocks and bonds are faltering and we are seeing, you know, a rally in commodities across the board. Uh, which, you know, when you typically have a commodity bull market, they have a tendency to last a while. Now, we know the story on these, on why this is, right? This is partly because of the underinvestment, not just in oil, but across the commodity sector. Um, the other thing is when you see things like rare earth metals, prices are way up, uh, supply is constricted there, um, copper, you know all these things lithium whatever you want to talk about is in short supply because there's just been a lack of investment across the board and uh, then you throw in the ESG uh, situation and that's creating you know demand that we wouldn't have typically forecasted so again you know um, I had a conversation with Trader Ferg for Crux Investor I don't think it's going to be able to be published for the public but these are some of the things we were talking about right it's like you know, um, sediment, are we too far into this? Should we be looking to get off? And I just, you know, I think I'm going to maintain my bullish nature with the caveat that you have to be ready for volatility, right? And that you have to be ready to understand, or you have to go into these things understanding. And I say these things, I'm talking about these cyclical markets. They are cyclical markets. It's not going to be linear progression where oil is just going to go up forever and you're going to become a millionaire. There will become a time where the price will get high enough for oil or any other commodity where the price will um, give incentive for new production to come on and it will also create demand destruction. And there's, there, there's an equilibrium price, if you will, for every one of these commodities or these resources. So it's not a one-way bet. It's not, you know, buy and forget. You know, the other thing that we talked about that I think I wanted to, you know, reiterate to you folks listening to this is, you have to be an active investor. You know, we were talking about oil, for example. What's the best way to take take, you know, advantage of it? I mean, you're in a situation where there's locales around the world, say the U.S., even currently under you know, the current um, government structure or regime, if you will that is has a negative view towards uh, the oil and gas industry extraction industry here in the United States. Um, you know, so I would say that, you know, uh, one of the things we talked about is like, well, you know, Russia doesn't have that view. So if you don't think that Russia is going to invade Ukraine and we're going to have sanctions against Russia, then Russian oil stocks are very cheap. So what I'm trying to say is you have to be active. You can't just go buy an ETF, forget about it and then come back in a year or two you're you know, count your money. You're going to have to be active. You're going to have to keep watching these things. You're going to have to get yourself emotionally uh, prepared for the volatility that I think is going to be there. You know, every time that uh, we get an inflation print of seven and a half, you know, then we were going to get, you know, remember, we were going to get seven interest rate increases this week. Then, you know, this week after we had the print, you know, there was supposed to be a surprise, you know, there was, things in the press we're going to get a surprise half point or a full point and then the fed governors are walking it back you're going to get a lot of volatility when you have this kind of news going on in the markets and it's just not to my mind worth you know I'm not going to try to trade around that I think the overall trend is up uh, I don't know when it exhausts itself but uh, that's why I say think you have to be an active investor and look at it. you know when you have oil trading at backward in backwardation you know that means that there's a near term demand for oil that's screaming to the market give me more oil producers I need more oil uh, so as long as we see things like that uh, we're not going to be too worried about a big pullback there will be pullbacks along the way but uh, the way demand is shaping up and some of the things we'll talk about in this video I mean I've been talking about oil like for six weeks in a row now and it's starting to, it's starting to worry me a little bit I was looking back I was like I got to talk about oil again this week I mean, I'm getting a little bit too far on one side of the canoe with everybody, but uh, the fundamentals just are screaming at me that, you know, this this market uh, is wants to go higher. The demand for oil is there; it's almost insatiable, and supply, quite frankly, has been constricted. And uh, we're just starting to see the beginning of an oil field services cycle, where spending starting to increase. We don't know how big the spending will get, but you know, we're talking about yeah, you know, for example, I was listening to—I can't forget what conference call it was. Maybe it was a podcast. But you know, if you're going to go out and buy shares back, which is what people want to happen for a return, but then these executives are looking at maybe some of their potential oil plays that could have—you know—at these oil prices at ninety dollars a barrel, there are there are plays out there that have over a hundred percent internal rates of return, and so they're going to be itching to want to go drill these things. So. I don't know how it shakes out. Uh, We'll just have to keep our finger on the pulse, literally, and see which way uh, it takes us. But you're going to have to be active, like I said. When I mean active, that means not just buy and forget. Uh, You're going to have to be paying attention to what's going on with these individual companies, individual basins, the overall market, uh, and, uh, you know, watch what's going on. But uh, I like this. This was kind of a... I think I thought it was a good way to put this. This is a molecule crisis. We are out of everything. Uh, well, well put. So um, this is a tweet by Ferg. Just to remind where we are with energy stocks as a you know the historical average of the energy weight in the S and P. And a quote from Howard Marks, another guy i would like to follow, right? Rule number one, most things will prove to be cyclical. Rule number two, some of the greatest opportunities for gain and loss come when other people forget rule number one. We are still, you know, we're very, I mean, this has moved up a little bit, but, uh, you know, I think at the bottom of the oil and gas equity crash, if you want to call it, we were like at two and a half percent. Uh, the oil and gas sector represent two and a half percent of the weighting of the S&P 500. Um, and you can see that typically we're up at 10 percent. You know, we have substantial room for mean reversion. Um, and I think that we are going to the fundamentals of these uh, companies are tremendous. If you even saw some of the majors where they came out with Exxon and Chevron, not too shabby on their earnings. So um, I think a lot of people have forgotten the cyclicality and the kind of torque you can get from a cyclical rebound in a uh, various resource markets or cyclical businesses. So this is what we've been talking about where there's more and more people coming around to this realization that OPEC is not meeting its quotas. Um, you can see here that uh, you know, I think it's been month after month now, there's been several months where, you know, the 400,000 barrel a day increases are not coming because these various OPEC members can't increase production for the reasons we've talked about. In an extractive industry, constant reinvestment is required in order to not only maintain production, but to increase production. And, you know, having been in a lot of these industries, working in industry, one of the things you'll see during a slump, during a turndown in the business is what maintenance can we defer, um, stop buying lunches for the crew, pull back on overtime, all the little things that these managers do because, you know, you've went from feast to famine. And so you're not looking to spend money, you're looking to not spend money. And that does have an effect on machines and people. And uh, especially in an extractive industry, if you're not going to go out and find new reserves and develop them, then you're slowly going to go out of business. So this chart basically shows you that the most of the increase from OPEC has come from Saudi and UAE and the rest of the OPEC members are not meeting their quotas. And that includes Russia, right? So um, it's interesting because this is one of the main things that I've been talking about that what happens, you know? Maybe they're just holding back because I don't know. That's I heard somebody actually say that they actually have the oil, but they're kind of holding it back, and they're gonna, you know, they're not just not gonna let the they don't want it to get too far out of whack. I mean, believe me, I don't think OPEC wants oil at 120 or 130 or 140 dollars a barrel. They certainly don't want to spike to 200. Uh, that to causes too much dislocation. They want a steady price that is both good for them and good for consumers. But the problem is, is that they don't have the ability to control it like they did in the past, simply because of the fact that a lot of the members aren't able to meet their production quotas. And as I says, this manifests itself as being more and more present in the market as a truth. I believe that this is going to uh, further exacerbate the upswing in oil prices. And so here's a, you know, Vital is a big energy trader company, it trades commodities. Um, here's their, a quote from one of their guys who's the their head in Asia. Here's a quote from him. Market is telling you to be careful. Don't be short because we are one disruption, one refinery wobble away from markets getting even stronger. Inventories continue, he's talking about oil inventories, continue to sit less that are worrisome. Spare capacity in OPEC plus is really down to two and a half or three members now. And month after month, the 400,000 barrel per day barrels per day that is being put on the market is actually in effect a much, much smaller number than that. We can debate whether it's the second half of this year or sometime next year. OPEC capacity reaches levels. That are considered alarming debate has now swung to how soon we need Iranian supply to help alleviate the situation. Well it's not like you know Iran has not been exporting oil they've been secretly exporting oil, maybe not their full volumes that they're capable of, but they have been exporting. Okay, just illegally and using rogue tankers and all that so I don't know how much help you're going to get from them. Or how much capacity is being held back, and you know. uh, I I just don't know enough about the market to say that, but this is the head oil trader, uh, head of the, you know, of a big major oil trader telling you what we've talked about, saying basically virtually the same thing we've been saying, okay? And again, once this market, you know, we're in a situation now where the pandemic is receding, it's going endemic, all the politicians are crawfishing back, we're lifting restrictions left and right, travel's going to increase, and we'll show that later, but, you know, I mean, when that jet fuel demand comes back in the spring and summer um which a lot of people were forecasted could be somewhere around a million and a half to two million barrels per day you throw the summer driving season in people really want to go on vacations and get out bust out of their houses um i don't know i mean we're already pushing a hundred we're, we're over 90 dollars a barrel now and we're supposed to be building inventories during this time okay or being close to being in a shoulder season where we build inventory so um, I, I obviously can't predict the future, but this is why we keep talking about oil every week. Because it's very extremely bullish. It's what makes me nervous. I don't like talking about the same thing six weeks in a row. But the news—this is the news, right? And the thing about you know, as we've talked about before, you know, everything that you buy at the store comes on a truck, train, or ship or something. So. All of these energy costs, eventually, you know, the feedstocks to make the make the plastics for the things. And we've talked about this ad nauseum. It's, it's going to filter in. So I don't know what the breaking point is. I saw somebody calculated the other day that the 2008 high, I think it was $148 a barrel and inflation adjusted. Now, adjusting for inflation, if we hit 148, that would not be a new inflation adjusted high. To get to an equivalent high would be around $200 to $220 a barrel based on the inflation that we've had since 2008. I mean, can you envision a scenario where we could be at $200 a barrel oil? What does that do to the world economy? What does that do to the political, economic, and social fabric of various countries? Um, and how long could it be? Could it happen on a spike? Or will there be a new plateau that we hit 200 and maybe only come back down to 100? 20 or 130 or 140 I don't know. Um, This is what's so fascinating watching this market. But I do think this market has a lot of momentum. It wants to go higher. The market price is telling you, like I said, it's in backwardation. The the price is telling you, give us, industry needs to give us more oil. And, um, you know, and then you throw in the fact that the underinvestment and now, you know, deliberately making policies to restrict and retard the growth and reinvestment into hydrocarbons it's just uh it's setting up for a real big spike again it will be volatile i think very volatile a lot of people get shaken on and off we showed the uranium chart last week you know on the video a lot of people got shook off right the FOMO will be there the shiny object syndrome will be there so just be wary of that but i think there's quite a bit of opportunity here so this is what I want to talk about some of the service stocks. You know, I've been talking about oil field services in general, the larger companies Schlumberger, Halliburton, the oil field services, ETF. But uh, I want to read this quote and then I'll tell you what I'm really getting interested now, what I'm starting to see, and what I'm starting to put capital into. And I will be uh, having uh, some picks for the new the newsletter coming up uh, in the uh, March issue. So this is from the Precision Drilling Q4 uh, report here's a quote. Thank you, Carrie, and good afternoon. While the global recovery remains uneven and some lingering, and with some lingering uncertainties, the fundamentals for precision may be the best I've witnessed in four decades. Okay, global oil demand has almost fully recovered, but with sharply reduced activity and virtually zero exploration drilling of the last two years, the resulting oil and gas prices are strong, and the markets are firmly acknowledging. The rapidly typing, t- uh, I don't know what this is, tightening oil and gas supply demand equation. The inve- the investors ha- have drilled, the in- I don't know, have drilled uncompleted as they're called, have dwindled, super spec rig is tight, tighter than people understand, and customer demand will shortly absorb the remaining spare capacity. Labor inflation is here and real, but service price inflation is also here, and it is real. As I've said well, I, I don't want to get into, but what I would like to focus on is the fact that precision drilling is seeing at least one of the the CEO. I believe this is the CEO says that the 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 fundamentals for his business have been the best he's witnessed in four decades. Again, this could be people just talking their book, but you're seeing a lot of this type of dis, this type of comments in this market. And so, what I've started noticing, I've started noticing a lot of smaller service providers, especially in Canada, showing up on the 52-week high list, new high list, and I started scouring these things. I said, okay, I like that's something I like to do is go through the 52-week new high list every day and see if I could see a trend emerging among various industries. And what I'm starting to see now is a lot of the smaller uh, Canadian-based oilfield services companies are starting to break out left and right. Um, and then I deep dive and start looking at their latest earnings reports or their what's going on and their businesses are killing it. I mean, that was just, and a lot of them, I haven't seen the Q4 numbers yet. I've just seen the Q3 numbers and the year over year increases were substantially in the multiple double digits, 25, 30%, some companies in triple digits based on the different businesses they're in. So, or components of their business blowing up in a good way. So, um, we're seeing that. These stocks are extremely cheap. No one is going even near these things. I'm looking at the historicals on these things and some of these things just to get back to recent new highs before the pandemic have to go three or three to five times. That's just to get back to what they were before the pandemic started. And then if you want to take it back, if you want to roll it back to the boom times, who knows, right? And so um, I'm start, I'll be curious to see what a lot of these folks are saying, but we're seeing a lot more... Like on Twitter, some of the people we follow that are, you know, seeing this day to day are saying the same thing. Of course, the labor inflation's there because getting guys to come off, get off the couch, and come back to the business, um, tools, parts, um, you know, sand, whatever. You're going to have all these issues. But uh, typically, what I like to see is, can the business? And that was commented on one of the other smaller companies I was looking at. They were having issues with. Um, getting labor qualified labor and it was costing a ton of money so i mean if you pay people enough they'll get off the couch but you know you have to be able to recover those costs so um i think there's tremendous opportunity as i've said in oil field services in the larger scope of just buying the etf and being involved in the larger you know large caps but there is really some i think five and ten baggers in these small caps and uh, i'm starting to deep dive that you just i'm You know, like earlier in the week or last week, I saw one or two companies. I'm seeing it across the board. I'm seeing a lot of companies break out. And then when you go back and look at the earnings, if you go back and look at the reports, um, the businesses are improving rapidly across the board. So here's uh, from Nine Point Partners. You know, um, OECD, that's the Organization of Economic cooperation and development basically your developed countries europe the united states canada that kind of stuff but here's our total petroleum inventories and in millions of barrels and you can see this goes back to um january 2016 but you can see where we are i mean then you see this uh what uh, they've put on here this is the december 2021 level um basically when you're at this level wti Oil price averaged $96 a barrel. So this is another thing I'm looking at. I'm looking at, you know, the backwardation. I'm looking at inventories every week and they keep going down. I mean, I think somebody said the other day that we're averaging about a worldwide about a million, million and a half barrels draw every day until you see that, until I see some indication that that's going to turn around, until I see some indication that the backwardation is reversing, I'm not going to uh, sit here and be, worried about, you know, selling out oil stocks too early. Um, There's no indication that uh, there's this big slug of oil coming from anywhere. I keep asking the question, where is the oil going to come from? You know, don't, you know, just getting back to normal, if you will, and travel. But what about the declines every year? You know, the last two years, there hasn't been any investment. And we've talked about this before that Exxon in a presentation talked about 6%, 7%, something like that. Global, worldwide depletion. So you're down twelve to fourteen uh, de- percent, depending on. I don't know if that's accurate because there was there is always investment, hasn't been enough. But let's just say you're down four or five percent each year, right? Worldwide declines. You're down ten percent, but yet you have demand returning and growing. Remember, the emerging markets don't stop growing. Okay, that's going to be a a long term pressure on the oil. Uh, demand picture and, and concurrently the oil price, right? Because China, India, Indonesia, the Philippines, you go down to Africa's a billion people. These people all want more convenient lives, better lives, more product, everything you have, they want. And that's all energy intensive. That's not going to be dealt with with solar panels and windmills. Uh, petroleum demand hydrocarbon demand is going to continue to increase and so we're having this supply and demand are just going to crash into each other and i don't know what that means this thing just blows up in a supernova we'll see but uh until i see something like this even turning around or even looking like it's going to turn around i'm not worried you know (laughs) you have some people on twitter uh, that people make outlandish claims sometimes but you know could you see what if you're trending in an, in an environment where you're at $150 a barrel, and then something does happen, as the head of uh, Vital said, and, there's, and you're one bump away from a, a, a price spike? So this is really a precarious market, one with a lot of opportunity, but a lot of landmines. And so this shy girl, I, I, I'm not trying to start an argument with her, but it says inventory builds are not coming through. In fact, we continue to observe draws. Fed can't fix this. You know, it's popular to say the Fed can't print barrels of oil. That's exactly right. One thing that they could do, and it is a risk, the, the risk is not zero, but it's not that high in my view. You know, you could, they could come in and raise rates, you know, and crimp this economy, and uh, that would tighten demand. You know that would tighten demand. That that could deal a blow to the uh, commodity markets. But are they going to do that? We just crossed another threshold this week. Thirty trillion dollars in debt the U.S. government has now. Okay, thirty trillion dollars in debt. Okay, so if you're if you're constantly rolling this deck because you're not paying it back, I mean, how much you can start doing the math, right? Um, at zero rates, it's easy to probably deal with, right? At 1%, you know, what about 3 or 4%? You know, typically, back in the day, rates would be typically around 5 to 6%. There's no way we're going to see that. I mean, you had the Fed, the Fed governors this week when somebody was floating over the last couple of weeks when it got suggested there could be seven interest rate increases or an emergency uh, between meeting uh, increase of a half percent or a full percent, and you had all these Fed governors come out, even some hawkish ones saying we're not we're not contemplating doing that, or we're far away from doing something like that. What is the context that the Fed is going to raise rates in? I mean, we're at seven and a half percent in CPI, and that's understated. Everybody, anybody that's not a nitwit knows that. You know, we're calculate if we calculated it based on the way they used to calculate it, it's probably 15% or higher. So I don't see the, I don't see the, I'm not as worried about the Fed. That's why I think the gold market, I mean, a lot of people said, well, gold's breaking out now. It looks like it may be on the verge of breaking out or may have broken out based on the Ukrainian Russian situation. Um, That could be possible, but it could also be possible that the gold market's starting to sniff out that this is not a serious Fed and they have no intention of 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 um, raising rates to the level that are that is necessary to slow this economy down and put a wet blanket on these price increases in these commodities, you know I think I saw a a, a tweet by Cuppy, you know he showed the uh, CPI and the interest rates like you know the Fed's getting ready to get lapped here. I mean there's <laughs> they're way, they're so far behind they're getting ready to get lapped on the track. So um, I just don't see it. Um, it's just like the previous thing we looked at you know we're not seeing inventories go up we're seeing them go down we're seeing the price action on the curve telling us telling the market it wants more oil and so here here we go you know um u.s travel recovery projected to exceed pre-pandemic levels looking at um This is trillions of dollars of travel and tourism contribution to the US GDP, going from uh, 1.87 pre-pandemic to 2 trillion in 2022, a 6.2%. So travel and tourism in the US will outpace pre-pandemic levels this year, with the sector projected to generate 2 trillion, or 6% more than it did in 2019. That's according to new economic modeling by the World Travel and Tourism Council, working with Oxford Economics. The London-based group whose members include executives from over 200 companies, including United Airlines, Japan Airlines, Expedia, Hilton, Royal Caribbean, and others said in a press release dated February 9th that this year's recovery is dependent on two conditions. Steady vaccine rollout. You can forget about that. That's over with. Nobody, if you haven't had the vaccine, you're not getting it and you know people aren't gonna do it. The lifting of international travel restrictions, which are slowly but surely going to happen, as a manifestation of people reversing mass mandates and vaccine mandates we've got countries i think i can't even name them all now you know several weeks ago i mean the i'm not going to get into that right let's just suggest that we're going this pendulum is swinging back the other way on that and that's not going to be an issue if everything goes according to plan travel and tourism could contribute two trillion to the u.s economy in 2022 compared to 1.87 in the year before the start of the pandemic. On a global level, the industry is forecast to contribute 8.6 trillion in economic activity this year, according to the WTTC, which could be only 6.4% below the 9.2 trillion. So in the US we'll be up pre-pandemic and then worldwide, it looks like we may be actually down. But what I'm trying to tell you as is, we're already in a situation where oil is tight, and then you start adding more tourism, more air travel, more car travel, more trips. And uh, this is just going to be more gasoline on the fire. So here's our uh, friend Alexander Stahel. Uh, This is the uh, oil product supply index. Implied US liquids demand is roaring back now at 21.88 million barrels per day supplied crude oil products, this is big. This economy is thirsty, below since 1990 for context. You can see, I couldn't get the whole chart in here, but you can see we're making like new highs over here. On that basis, global demand well may well be above 103 million barrels per day in 2022. If we get to 103 mil- million barrels per day of demand in, tw- in this, uh, this year, uh, we will be well over $100 a barrel is my prediction. And here's part of the indication, right? Indian refiners running all out. Oil gets another big tail when as refiners go all out in India. Plants at 101% of capacity in December, up from 87% in August. State run processors trying to buy more term and spot crude. Why? Uh, this is the uh, profits per barrel for refining diesel. Okay, you're back to. I had to cut this chart off, but they're, they're minting money. So that's another reason the market's telling the refiners, give me more diesel, give me more distillate. Okay. I need more product. And so in order to get distillates and gasoline and heating oil or whatever, all these products that you need, you need more crude oil. So, um, these are obviously anecdotes, but every week I have more and more anecdotes suggesting the same thing. And look guys, I'm not want to pump. I don't want to sound like a pump like a broken record, like a one-way, you know, check valve here. But uh, it is what it is. I mean, the facts are what they are. And I don't want to understate things either. But I, again, again, the sediment, I'm, I'm cognizant of sediment and I'm cognizant of volatility. And I do get nervous when so many people are starting to get bullish now that, because that is beginning to happen. But the fundamentals, continue. that's why we do these weekly market updates, right? That's where we're trying to find information on a weekly basis to throw a wrench into this thesis and so far we're just seeing all the news items i'm not biased i'm looking for negative uh um uh news to to temper uh my views that the oil price is going a a lot higher this year and i'm not finding it so let's talk about cameco q4 conference call a lot of people have talked about and have time to really deep dive it um, I will tell you that they have Geitzel has completely changed his, you know, he's, he's full on bullish. Now, if you read the transcript, I just did a cursory review of it, but basically one of the things that they did say is that I believe I got this right. And you guys can correct me in the show, in the comments, if I'm wrong, they signed more, I think 40 million pounds of term contracts Representing 40 million pounds in January of 2022, just in the month of January, which fully exceeded by a factor. I think they, I think they may sold in the term agreements last year, 25 or 30 million pounds for the entire year of 2021. They've exceeded that in the first month of January. So they had you. you need you need to read the, the the press release and the transcript and the question and answer session because. They're talking about bringing MacArthur River back on now. Um, I mean, here's some of Geitzel's comments. In fact, the developments in our industry over the past year further support our belief that there is durability to, to demand that I am not sure we have ever seen in the industry before. The developments in our industry over the past year further support our belief that there is durability to demand that I am not sure we have ever seen in our industry. And the fundamentals are pointing to a transfer of risk from suppliers of uranium fuel to the users. So it's all coming together. I mean, Geitzel is one of the most, if you go back and listen to all his conference calls, you will see the progression. He's They're very conservative. They don't make wild comments. They don't talk about $200 uranium or a price spike. These are conservative people that uh, being the the 800 pound gorilla in the market. And th- again, here we have somebody saying that uh, they may have uh, some of the best conditions in the for demand for their product that they've ever seen in the market, in the industry before. So um, we go down to another quote, the thinning of material available in the spot market and the growing uncertainty of supply has led to the recognition that uranium prices need to rise to reflect production economics. So I would suggest that you go. I'll put a link in the show notes to the transcript and the uh, earnings release. Uh, They also had a presentation. Um, I got one of the slides coming up here. But uh, I don't, like I said, I normally just devote an entire weekly report to this. I just didn't have time this week. But I think you're going to find that it looks like the worm may have turned And uh, it seems as interesting too, because if you look at uh, like the North URNM, the North Shore Uranium ETF for stocks, the 50-day basically got way above. You remember how overbought we were in the summer and fall when um, Sprott entered the market, and there was a lot of FOMO and people, a lot of retail came into the market and pushed. uh, pushed the ETF over $100 a share and subsequently you know, digested that over the last few months and everybody left the uranium market. No one talks about uranium. I actually had a Weisenheimer last week. Uh, I hear you're not talking about uranium, lots of laughs. Uh, well, we're talking about it. I mean, what's there to talk about? The supply and demand? Uh, dynamics continue to get better demand is increasing supply is constrained and now the, the shift of the risk to the um, uh, to the the users of uranium from the suppliers so uh, and it's funny if you look at the 50-day what I wanted to make the point was right when the 50-day was getting ready to across the 200-day and kind of give you a bearish cross uh, we had a big bounce based on um, not the, only this news but some other news so this is what you do in a bull market, guys. You buy the dips. There's really not much to say. And, and you know, I don't want to, Ferg and I were talking about this too. Why don't I talk about uranium more? What, what do you want me to talk about? I'm not going to nuance every little piece of news. Okay, yes, France announced that they're going to build more reactors over the next 10 or 15 years. I'm, I, it, You know, that's all out there people like john quakes do that you can follow john quakes on twitter and every single piece of news that comes out about the uranium and nuclear industry you will be able to listen to you don't have to do anything now but just position yourself if you don't have your positions yet you should be buying them on this on this pullback we got from the summer and fall and buy the dips that's what you should do and there's nothing more to talk about just wait now and you're going to you're going to have more volatility in that market okay but uh, we're, we're on our way. We're in a bull market. We have been for probably a year and a half, two years, uh, slowly but surely. And we're going to continue to be in a bull market. Um, we'll just see how it, how it plays out. The, 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 all the news that we do see that comes out is continually bullish for future uranium prices. So I don't know why it would be necessary to talk about that unless it's just people want uranium porn uh, and I, I'm just not going to do that. Uh, there's not enough to talk about when something major comes up. This is major news here, you know, so we're we're going to follow that, you know, uh, when I just don't have time to like deep dive, we're generalist investors here. So we take on our positions for multi-year moves. And when, when we think we're where we need to be, we just sit and wait. And then we, you know, course correct as necessary. So. Again, here's a slide from Cameco, Uranium Market Fundamentals, best ever. That's their quote. You can uh, read this. Uh, producers, durable demand, decarbonization, electrification, ESG focus, creating electron accountability. I like how like Cameco uses these words, electron accountability. I mean, they're so like tight at, they just really seem to be like super conservative people that say these very well thought out, parsed language, you know? Electron accountability. I've never heard that before, but I know exactly what they're talking about. We want to know where these electrons are coming from. Is it renewable or something, you know, something that's not hydrocarbon based, right? Traditional demand improving near, mid, and long term, non-traditional demand, SMRs and advanced nuclear reactors. Demand from financial investors driven by intrinsic value of clean energy uranium. That's sprout and yellow cake. And so the risk is shifting to customers, right? That's your electric utilities, low prices cause supply curtailment, end of reserve life and lack of investment supply, COVID and global supply chain challenges, origin risk, geopolitical and trade policy issues, development risk, unproven assets. This is something they talked about in the conference call that I thought was really interesting. You know, if you're going to sign a term contract or get a supplier of uranium for your billions dollar multi-billion dollar reactor are you going to go and be talking to Cameco or Kaz Atomprom people that have demonstrated they can produce uranium that they can do it consistently and they can deliver on their contracts or are you going to go out and you know conjure up and say well i want to sign a deal with a company that's never built a mine does we're not sure if they can build a mine I mean I think people will be forced into some things like that but would you really want to put your you know, the only way that a the price of uranium is basically doesn't matter for a reactor. The the um, certainty of supply is what matters for a nuclear reactor. And so, playing games. Um, it's one of the things I talked about with Ferg. I think it's probably going to piss off some of his listeners. But I said, you know, people will say, "What about? What do you think about this little crap go? What do you think about that crap go?" And, and I don't really have an opinion too much on a lot of these companies because none of them will ever produce any uranium, more than likely. Um, there's, if you read, that doesn't mean that there won't be a general move higher. We, we've shown that from previous uranium cycles, that when the price moves, even all the little crap goes go up, can go up 1,000, 2,000% or 10,000%. But there may be you know maybe one or two companies that come out of this cycle with a producing mine. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna be successful because if you saw what happened in the last cycle, Paladin, which was run by very smart people that were very competent in the finding and building of a mine, brought it online right at the top and then it subsequently went bankrupt because the price of uranium collapsed. So um, these are things that people are not con- thinking about. These are not, with the exception of Cameco and Kaz Atomprom, these companies you guys own are not investments. They are speculations. They are trading sardines. And so if you're going to sit there and you know fantasize about company XYZ and wherever uh, is going to bring this to market, and I can, you know, and go on and on about it. I'm just not going to do that because that's really not what's going to happen. And I know that bothers people, that hurts people's egos, but that's a fact. That doesn't mean they won't go up. 10, you know, 1,000% or 2,000%. Some of them will. That's what we're here to. We're here to speculate that it becomes frothy and there's a blow off top. That's what we saw last time. We've shown chart after chart of what happened in 2008. So, or that last market from 2008 to 2012. So, you know, you still can make a tremendous amount of money even if your company doesn't produce a pound of uranium, which 99% of them won't do. So I wanted to talk about um, Peabody Energy, BTU. I've talked about it publicly. I own it. You know, it was interesting. We had the big run-up into the summer when we hit uh, almost 20 bucks, pulled back. You know, again, I remember, you know, before coal really started running, till so we had the molecule crisis, if you will, um, this company was on the verge of bankruptcy, it had been bankrupt, come out of bankruptcy, and was almost getting ready to go into again. So this is why I like cyclicality. This is why I like these resource markets. They're so cyclical when they get above their, you know, break even point or their cost of production, all that money goes, all that cash flow becomes positive and goes to the bottom line. And so we had kind of a pseudo double top here. We worked off all of this overbought condition. And then the earnings this week, I mean, we got down under 10, people were getting dis- dissatisfied. There was nothing to do the the, the business was continuing, you, you, you have to look at these as a business, right? It was continuing to improve. They were continuing to pay down debt. This was like, this was like Antero Resources 2.0, the same model, right? Another company that everybody thought was going to go bankrupt. People were buying it at, you know, a dollar or less than a dollar, dollar and a half, three dollars, you know, it subsequently ran up. It was the same model, right? We had the same thing happen here. And if I don't have time to get into the numbers, I don't have time to parse it, but they had tremendous the earnings report was tremendous. The cash flows are tremendous. The debt paydowns are continuing. This company is viable. And the coal prices, met coal prices and their thermal coal prices, thermal didn't perform as you know as best as it could have, but met coal did. And this thing's just minting cash. And remember something about these coal companies. I, I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about another, I think it was... Um, A-R-L-P, I I can't remember the name of the company. It's another coal company in Eastern U.S. Uh, What's the name of it? Um, Anyways, they were saying on their um, conference call that they have an outstanding um, credit, you know, revolving credit with various banks and half their banks have come to them and said, we're not renewing the revolver. We cannot be in business with a coal company. So I ask again: Where are these resources going to come from? If you own, Ferg and I talked about this too. You know, he made the um, equating these two tobacco companies, which were some of the best performing companies. Right? They had moats around them. They were hated businesses. Um, They uh, nobody was going to start a new tobacco company or cigarette company over the last twenty-five or thirty years or forty years or whatever. The government's been after these companies forever. And what do they continue to do? Throw off huge amounts of cash that they use to buy back stock and pay dividends. So think about coal like this, right? There's a world, this worldwide war on hydrocarbons, on coal specifically, and it's not going away. Um, And so if you own a viable coal mine with a longer term resource, you're and the demand's not going away, and banks won't loan. So if I, even if I did have a, a coal resource, even in a friendly type environment like Pennsylvania or West Virginia, first of all, the federal government's going to, like a current administration, is not going to let me. It's not going to let me get permitted. They're going to do everything they can. I'm going to have the uh, Natural Resources Defense Council suing me, the Sierra Club to stop it. I'm going to have protesters. They're going to get uh, agent provocateurs and i'm going to be in court and i'm going to get delayed and then even if i can't get the permits i just told you no one's going to give you any money to, there's no bank loans you're not going to be able to get money so if you have an existing permitted grandfathered assets you are looking tremendous i think the we talked about uh the spinoff that happened in south africa maybe going on a year ago that thing's up like three times i think right now and you're seeing the same thing i mean Peabody is a very large company. It had, it was in trouble. The coal prices have reversed, and then you have this war against um, any new companies coming online, and that's just putting these existing companies with existing assets in the cuckoo bird seat. They are, you know, they are. The demand for coal is not going to disappear. It could be going to a slow decline. Thermal, but Met Coal, you know, Met Coal. As we've said, most people don't know this because they just don't need it. Have to know. Without met coal, you can't have civilization because met coal is required to make coke, which is used in the, you know Bessemer uh, method of making steel in an oxygen blast furnace. And so, without steel, you cannot have civilization. And steel rusts, and it must be re- constantly replaced. So, I mean, these are things that are forgotten. And if you are not going to allow any new mines, then the existing mines will have pricing power. And they will eventually pay their debt off. And then they'll say, well, we have all this cash. What are we supposed to do with it? We can't build any more mines. I guess we'll pay dividends out and buy back stock. And so, you know, that that could be tremendous uh, long term. Uh, I think eventually the zeitgeist changes on these things, but these sometimes these changes are going to be generational. Think about it. We've got a whole generation of people that have been educated and immersed and, you know, force fed world-ending environmentalism since they were in K-4 and they went through the university. That those people are going to be very reticent or even unable to change their views on these things. But yet, you know, you see it even in Germany. The greens there are in power. The power prices are through the roof. The economy is, you know, being affected by these energy things and they're continuing to shut reactors down because this is what the prevailing belief system is for these for these people, and they're not fringe anymore. I mean, the Greens are in—I believe in a coalition government, but they have a lot of influence in in Germany. And it's not every country like that, but you know, self-immolation of your economy and your living standards at some point is the board upside the head, even for the true believer. You know, the zealot and the fanatic. Um, always deep down has, uh, they don't like to admit it, but they always have a doubt that is buried. And when you get slapped up the, upside the head and you get laid off because your company cannot be competitive anymore because of energy costs and your heating bill doubles and everything that you buy and then your standard of living goes down and your enjoyment of life goes down, you then may be ready to uh, overcome the 12, 16, or 18 years of environmental nonsense that you were immersed in, but uh, that's something that doesn't happen in a week or two or a year even, so I guess that's a, a lot more than you probably wanted to hear about this, but that's one of the things we talked about because these companies are not going to be allowed to expand. No new no new coal mines are going to come on of any significance. Yeah, here and there, you probably be able to do something in Russia and some of these other smaller countries in central asia they're not going to be as abusive but in general um the demand for coal will be there and it's, remember it's an extractive industry if you're not replacing the mines that get exhausted then the the players that are still alive get even better uh price power and market uh, share so it's very an interesting view and i think it's one to keep an eye on I think there's no reason why this company can't, this stock can't go to $30 this year easily uh, as long as the coal price keeps doing what it's doing. So we'll, we'll watch it. This is tremendous. Uh, this was a tremendous result. And I suggest you go back and read it. This is one of the companies we talked about um, publicly that we were uh, and, I, and I never sold a share throughout this whole move. And then this pullback. So I'll, In closing, I just want to remind you of this. This is the commodities to S&P ratio. So even with the tremendous moves we've had, you know, we're really not, we're still, you know, we need to get to this mean here before we start thinking, well, maybe we want to sell. But, you know, we're down, we're still down here. I mean, this has moved a little bit higher uh, recently because only like 2020. I need to find a more updated chart. But, you know, you've seen previous times when we've gotten way out of whack from the mean we always have a tendency to revert to the mean and these are like pretty long moves they're not like one year moves these are multi-year events that happen on the upside and the downside and if we're getting ready to catch a new uptrend I mean this is like historical the lows were historical here in this um ratio and so I I I mean, you can see, you can make the case where the fundamentals will support us going and going back to the mean. So um, we've already seen a violent rotation already in the last few months out of a lot of the tech stocks into um, value and resource stocks. And I just want to remind people, it doesn't mean it's a one-way trip. It doesn't mean it's set and forget. It doesn't mean just buy and go, come back in two years and rip Van Winkle it. You're still going to have to be active. You're still going to have to know what you own. You're still going to have to, Um, have some participation and think some of this thing out. So um, I still think, though, that uh, would I rather be long or short this chart? Ask yourself that. You know, this can resolve two ways. Stocks can come down and commodities can go up at the same time. Stocks can go massively down and commodities stay where they're at. Um, Commodities could go way up and stocks could stay stagnant. So there's multiple ways this can resolve. But what I would say to you is that typically what happens is stock market these overvalued equities and that money rotates into this okay and we're not even seeing you know when people say well sediment you got to be careful with sediment like indicators you get from like twitter and stuff too because there's you know you talk about you know i like to follow the guys that they call themselves the canadian oil mafia but it's not like it's tens of thousands of guys it's you know a few dozen people and then you know few hundred hanger-ons that listen so it's not and and these guys are super great that's not to denigrate them but i wouldn't say that sediment is overwhelmingly bullish to this point yes generalists are coming back yes money's coming back but people are going to be restricted because people aren't allowed to invest in these things but uh you know last year if you weren't in energy you underperformed and it's looking like that this year too so at some point if you're not performing um you get you get clipped, you get you lose your job. And I don't think walking into a pension fund and saying, well, our ESG investments were down 20%. And then they're like, well, energy has been up the last two or three years. What have you been doing? And uh, so uh, I think the bottom line is usually the bottom line. All right, guys, I think that's it for this week. Uh, I went a little bit long, um, a little bit late today because I got a lot of things going on Saturday night, but I'll get this up as soon as I get off here appreciate the uh, support. We continue to grow across all venues, YouTube, Twitter, uh, the newsletter, um, whatever. Uh, And it's all because of the um, participation and the trust that you uh, give us. So we're grateful for that and want to say thank you. All right, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week.